Well, good morning. On this day of the Feast of Christ the King is another opportunity for us to stand up and brag about Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. He was an amazing human being and a beautiful reflection of the Father. He still is amazing and still is worthy of our praise for who He is and worthy of all of our thanksgiving for all that He has done. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is Christ the King. So on the last Sunday of the church year, we turn our attention to Jesus the King. Our last collective act of the year is to proclaim together the most ancient Christian creed, and that is, Jesus is Lord. But is He my Lord and King? Is He yours? And by saying that Jesus is my Lord and King, we are saying that all things are not, all other things are not. In the days of the early church, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. So when we say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and King, we are saying that, here I'm going to list just a few things, but there could be so many more, money and electronics and TVs, computers, job, spouse and family, golf, football, other material things and sports, friendships, drugs, success, political parties. Let me say that again political parties, desires and affections, addictions of any kind, whoever and whatever is not. This is a Sunday to contemplate His sovereign rule and pledge afresh our loyalty and renew our longing for His kingdom, rule, and reign to come on earth as it is in heaven. And that is why we pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Send more of your kingdom in our life, family, church, city, nation, and world. The Feast of Christ the King is of modern origin. It was instituted in 1925 to function in a countercultural way against the secularization of the modern world. In hoping to celebrate the Lordship of Christ in a world of increasingly secular and non-Christian empires, Pope Pius XI inaugurated this day. Now, my favorite scholar, Anglican Bishop um, N.T. Wright, expresses his dislike where this feast day has been placed in the church year. It has historically been celebrated at the Feast of the Ascension, and that is probably the proper place uh, where it should be. And by placing it at the end of the church year, we can wrongly conclude that this feast is about pointing to the day when Christ will be king when he comes back again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth and when He will make all things new. And yes, He will precisely do those things, but He is King now. His life, miraculous works, death and resurrection established Him as King then. And we don't wait for Him to be King. He is King now. So nonetheless, we still lean into the feast day, even though placed at the end of the church here, and we press into the implications that this has in our lives. It is needed now more than ever, especially in our postmodern, post-Christian, and consumeristic world. And not only has Christmas become saturated by consumerism, crowding out the real, real meaning of the season, but this is the case for Christ in all the seasons of life these days. Jesus came to live, to show the way through words and actions, to die for our sin, to rise from the dead, to conquer all the powers of evil, and to reign as Lord over his entire creation. 
And in this expectation, we are being spiritually formed by bowing our knees to Christ, surrendering ourselves, yielding ourselves to King Jesus. We're inviting the King of history to take up residence in our hearts and lives and to be the Lord of life now in this and in every moment of our thoughts, feelings, and actions. More of heaven, God's kingdom, coming to earth now like it is in heaven. But I want to encourage us this morning to be careful with our words because words flow easily out of our mouths when we sing songs and when we recite the liturgy and when we pray. But do we stop and think about what we are saying? Or does our mind drift? Is there a disconnect between our heart and actions and our lips? You know, we know the importance of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. We know not to take the Lord's name in vain. We often think that this is in reference to adding an expletive after God's name. And it includes that. But what about naming and declaring the Lordship of Christ in our life when we have other gods on the throne? May we be careful what rolls off our tongues. May the words in our prayers and songs match what is in our hearts. And when we declare Christ as King, may that mean that He is Christ our King as well. In our Old Testament reading this morning, shepherds and leaders were leading God's people astray, and the results were disastrous. Judah's unjust rulers have caused their people, their flock, to be scattered. And this is a cry of outrage against those who have abused God's given power. Now God intervenes, God himself personally gathers his exiles and places them under safe shepherds and brings them home again where it is now safe and secure. So God will fulfill his covenant that he made with King David hundreds of years earlier and establish a righteous branch of David to reign from Jerusalem. So the restoration of God's exiles and the installation of this new king, God's anointed, the Christ, will be so glorious, so significant, that it will change the course of history, and as we know, it certainly did. As we look to Christ as our model shepherd and king, what can we learn for living in and engaging the world today? As our world struggles with poverty and division and war, how do we consider our call to live as God's people? With the division that we find ourselves in the United States of America, with people on all sides, now let me make that clear, all sides acting badly, how are we as the people of God to live faithfully under this rule and reign of Jesus Christ? One thing I know for sure, it is not to spread more fear and hate or jump to conclusions and pronounce judgment on someone that we don't like and certainly not using email and social media to do so because that just contributes to the problem. Is that correct? Certainly there is an appropriate time to speak up and a proper way to do it, but it surely won't be with the same venom and fear and hate and judgmentalism, the same characteristics used by the people that we often talk about. And if we walk in this way, and as we've talked about the last two weeks from 2 Thessalonians, we are no longer standing firm and walking, and we are walking out of line, not living by the traditions that we have received. So we have to face our own fear and hate and prejudice and judgmentalism, the log in our own eye before we talk about the speck in someone else's. 
So though it is, a, is not part of our reading this morning, I want us to just talk briefly about Luke chapter 1. And that's the song of Zechariah. And that's part of our reading every day in morning prayer. And, see, and we can see what um, is wrong in the world. People are suffering. Wicked um, foreigners have come from far away with hatred in their eyes and weapons in their hands. Darkness and death have filled the land. And this might be the case for some of us even here this morning. We might be experiencing great darkness and despair and sickness and discouragement. And having this message, knowing this feast day, we might be asking, well, in our darkness, where is Christ the King? And I think that's a good, fair question. And even though we will, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the song of Zechariah more in just a moment, we find in our gospel reading that Jesus Christ, God's Son, went to the cross. And in the midst of his life and healings and miracles, people were being changed and transformed. And then Jesus gets arrested, tried, and crucified. And his followers were in despair and confused and dashed. Christ, the anointed one, is dead. But Jesus knew that this was not the end of the story. And there will be dark times in life. And just like the psalmist who cried out many times, Where are you, God? Why are you letting bad things happen to good people? In our psalm this morning, it says, God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be moved, and though the hills be carried into the midst of the sea. Though its waters rage and swell, and though the mountains shake at its tempest, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. Therefore, she shall not be moved. God shall help her at the break of day. The nations are in an uproar, and the kingdoms are moved, but God has lifted his voice, and the earth shall melt away. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Oh, come and behold the works of the Lord. And of course, this psalm continues on beyond that. So though much has gone wrong, there is hope. Zechariah comes across as someone who has pondered the agony and the hope for many years. These words from Zechariah are about God acting, finally doing what he promised many centuries ago and doing it at a time when the people were in slavery and bondage. And now at last, God was going to give them deliverance. God had made a covenant with Abraham and promised to send a mighty Savior through the line of David. God had spoken of a prophet who would go ahead to prepare the way. All these things Zechariah had known, believed, prayed, and longed for. And now they were all to come true. And the prophet who would prepare the way would be Zechariah's own son, and that is John the Baptist. Many people of that day thought that God would come to set them free from the occupying Romans through military might. Zechariah's vision goes beyond simply a realigning of political powers. God's mercy, the forgiveness of sins, the rescue from death itself, all of this points to what it means to encounter salvation. We see in the song of Zechariah the personal stories of hope and fear of ordinary people like Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary hesitating between faith and doubt called to trust God at a new moment in history. 
It sounds like you. It sounds like me. We hesitate between hope and fear and faith and doubt. In what areas of our lives is God calling us to trust in Him? The Song of Zechariah in Luke 1 gives us a clear picture about how Creator God came to rescue His people. It might not mean that all of our circumstances in life will change, but it does mean that we will change. And in the midst of our darkness and pain in life, God is there to walk with us and to shine His light. God is there to walk with us and to show Himself mighty and powerful. As God, um, excuse me, as Jesus knew and the disciples eventually found was true, Friday is here, but Sunday is coming. This brings us to our epistle in Colossians, and I have not put together complicated puzzles in my life, nor do I desire to do so at this point. However, I have put together a few puzzles, mainly with my daughter, Carol, when she was younger, and that was a, a good while ago. Um, but it had a picture of a box, and I was so thankful for that picture. That picture made it possible, it made it possible at least for me. We had the inspiration and the faith to get on with it and to get her done. And frustration would have overwhelmed me without it, and I would have probably eventually given up. But that is precisely what Scripture does for us in relation to the chaos and confusion of the world in which we live. The Scripture gives us a picture, a story, a grand narrative of God's salvation history. Jesus Christ, the King, is the one who gives coherence to all the disconnected pieces of the puzzle of life. In Him, everything interlocks. In Him, everything finds its purpose. With that picture on the box, we were inspired to begin the work of piecing the puzzle together. It was a painfully slow process. There was what seemed an endless search for pieces that fit together. And do you know what the Bible calls that? He calls it reconciliation. Putting pieces together that belong together because of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus Christ is doing with the chaos and the confusion in our lives and in the world. He is in the business of putting our lives back together again and making them whole. In Colossians 1, Paul celebrates Christ's reign as creator and sustainer of the world, as the head of the church, the one who reconciles every broken thing to God by what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. This story of reconciliation is a witness to God's love. There's a fabulous invitation here to take stock of our lives, to see what else might have moved into first place, what else might have triumphed over Christ, the King of our lives, what idols, what gods we follow. And if that is the case, we need to ask that God reorder our lives in order to fit with God's holy purposes, life in the kingdom where he is the king and we are his kingdom subjects. God does not share first place his lordship and kingship. He's jealous when it comes to that. He wants and demands to be king and lord of our lives. The reality is that you and I, we don't always live this way and we allow other things to become our gods and our idols. 
And we're not necessarily to feel shame and, 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 and perpetual guilt for this. But whenever we realize this, the Holy Spirit nudges our hearts and woos us by His love to Him to see the fact that we have sin in our life. And what are we to do? We are to respond. We're to realign. We are to think again. We're to change. We're, we're to repent is what the whole word repent means is these things. And then, of course, follow Him obediently. So what does it mean for Christ to be King and Lord of my life? It seems like a lot of people treat Jesus as the other friend. Sometimes, regrettably, I have treated Jesus that way, and I'm sure some of you probably have done that as well. We're willing to pay some attention to Him on an occasional Sunday. Today, it's a feast day of Christ the King. We're willing to admit that He's on our friend list. We're even willing to call on Him when all other options uh, fall through. However, he wants to be more than a casual friend. He wants to be our entire life, our reason for living. Jesus never died on the cross and rose from the dead to be our casual friend and homeboy. Someone to come to when all other options seem unavailable. Jesus' love, his death, his resurrection, it demands our soul, our life, and our all. He demands our first, not our leftovers. He demands our priority, not our remainder. So this king has a kingdom. It's where he rules and where he reigns. And where he is king and lord, his kingdom is. His sphere of influence and his will and his purposes take place. When God's will and purposes are done, that is evidence of his kingdom. I want to end where I started. Is is Christ my Lord and King? Is He yours? By saying Jesus is my Lord and King, we're saying that all other things are not. Living under the reign and the rule of King Jesus Christ means that we're called to live our lives to love God and neighbors as ourselves. And as we love and we grow in our relationship with God, we give ourselves away to love and serve the world. And that includes all people. We live for the sake of the world. May we pray. God the Father, help us to hear the call of Jesus Christ the King and to follow Him faithfully. And we ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.